This is the Relic Radio Show, old-time radio entertainment still standing the test of time from RelicRadio.com. This is the Relic Radio Show with another 60 minutes of radio drama for you this Tuesday. We're going to hear first from Theater Royal. We'll hear their story from October 18th, 1953, titled The Tale. After that, it's Radio City Playhouse and Murder is a Matter of Opinion. That story aired May 23rd, 1949. Now transcribe Theater Royal. The National Broadcasting Company presents Sir Lawrence Olivier, your host in Theater Royal. This is Laurence Olivier. In a few weeks' time, when the new stage play in which I'm appearing with my wife comes to London's West End, I shall have the pleasure of appearing each week in a different play on this program. But until then, I'm very happy to have the opportunity of introducing as my guests some of my own friends from the theatre. Today's guest is an exceptionally good companion of mine, and we have had many very happy associations together on the stage. You may perhaps recall our visit to the United States some years ago with the old Vic Theatre Company. I'm speaking, of course, of Ralph Richardson. Ralph has chosen for you a dramatization of a story by Joseph Conrad. It is, in my opinion, one of the best he ever wrote, and I think you will enjoy it. It has perhaps the simplest title of any story I know. Here, then, is Ralph Richardson in Joseph Conrad's story of the First World War, The Tale. Outside the large, single window, the late evening light was dying out slowly. In the long room, the irresistible tide of the light had run into the most distant parts of it, where the whispering of our voices, passionately interrupted and passionately renewed, had died away with the dying light. Now I could see only the faint oval of her upturned face, the pale immobility of her hands against the dark of her dress. Oh, we loved each other, yes, but there was little hope in that love. At last, she turned her head away. Please. We can only hurt ourselves going on like this. You know that. Oh, my darling. Tell me something. (laughs) What am I to tell you? Why not tell me a tale? A tale? Yes, why not? Why not? You used to tell your simple and professional tales very well at one time. You had a sort of art. That summer, 1914, the days before the war. Oh, really? But now you see the war is going on. It could be a tale not of this world. Well, if you want a tale of the other, the better world, you must call back someone who's already gone there. No, I don't mean that. I mean other, some other world in the universe, not in heaven. Oh, I'm relieved. But you forget that I've only five days leave. Yes. And I've also taken five days' leave from my duties. I like that word. What word? Duty. It is horrible sometimes. 
That's because you think it's narrow. But it isn't. It contains infinity. And, and so... What is this jargon? An infinity of absolution, for instance. Press to this other world. Who's going to look for it? And the tale that's in it? You. Huh? As you will. In that world, then, there was once upon a time a naval commanding officer and a Scandinavian. It was a world of seas and continents and islands. Like the earth? Yes. A war was going on in that world, and many young men in it, mostly in wardrooms and messes, used to say to each other, it's a bad war, but it's better than no war at all. That sounds flippant, doesn't it? Yes. Let's get back to our commanding officer, who, of course, commanded a ship, a warship. But he used to be sent out with her along certain coasts to see what he could see, just that. Sometimes he had some preliminary information to help him, and sometimes he hadn't. But in the early days of the war, the ship was sailing in northern waters, steaming along her beach in sight of a rocky, dangerous coast that stood out in tensive black like an Indian ink drawing on gray paper. Well, anything to report? No, sir. Not so much as a fishing boat. Nothing stirring on shore there. The coast's absolutely deserted. I never mind about the coast. It's the sea we're interested in. You know what used to amaze me? was the way that the war never seemed to change. Just the same expanse of water, neither more friendly nor more hostile. It's impossible to believe that that same horizon has now become one great circular ambush. Yes, it is until you see a ship blow up all of a sudden and plop under almost before you know what's happened to her. Uh, then you believe it, all right. After that, you keep your eyes on her to see what you can see. You begin to wonder whether one day you may not die from something you haven't seen. You know, in some ways, one almost envies the soldiers. At the end... Look, sir, the... out there, ahead, on the starboard bow. Quick, man, hard a port. It may be a mine. Ahead of the ship, something was floating and rolling lazily on the sea. Something, but what? A ship's course was altered to pass the object close. It was necessary to have a good look at it and to see what one could see, close, but without touching it. It was not advisable to come in contact with objects of any form floating carelessly about. Small wreckage, perhaps. But there shouldn't be any wreckage here. No. The last reported torpedoings were a long way westward. But one never knows. There may have been others that weren't reported, gone with all hands. Yeah. Seems to be a battle. Here, have a look through the glasses, sir. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Pretty obvious proof of what we've suspected all along. That certain neutrals around here haven't been quite so neutral as they should have been. U-boats? Yes. Yeah. Replenishing the stores of U-boats. Somewhere not so very far off, either. But why leave the evidence lying about like it? Why, indeed. Almost looks as though it had been done on purpose. What on earth for? More probably it was an oversight. Or maybe somebody had to get away quickly before they were spotted. Well, it's proof of what we were pretty certain of before. And plain, too. How much good it will do us. The parties are miles away. You both the devil only knows where. But ready to kill. And the noble neutral slipping away to the eastward, ready with a pack of lies. 
Yeah. Well, they won't have to lie very much. Fellows like that, unless caught in the act, are pretty safe. Yeah. I suppose they can afford to chuckle. They probably don't even care a rap for the bit of evidence left behind. It's a game where practice makes you bold and successful, too. Yeah. Well, perhaps this will be once too often. May not have been all that long ago. Well, it doesn't have to have been by the look of things. Not in this kind of weather. You see? The fog's coming up again. A solid white wall of it. Well, here we go again. In five minutes, we were in the thick of it. Great convolutions of vapor flew over, swirling about our masts and funnel, which looked as if they were beginning to melt. Then they vanished. The ship was stopped. All sounds ceased. The very fog became motionless, growing denser as if solid in its amazing dumb immobility. Men at their stations lost sight of each other. Footsteps sounded stealthily. Rare voices, impersonal and remote, died away without residence. A blind white stillness took possession of the world. Well, what do we do now? Here, wait a minute. The fog's lifting. Oh, only in patches. Look, there's the shoreline again. Ah, that's a bit better. Right. Now I know where I am again. We're going inshore. Yes, but... Ah, it's all right. I know this stretch of coast like the back of my hand. That peak there's the southern shore of a fjord. We're going to ease round into it and sit tight till the weather mends. There's plenty of sea room and we can drop anchor. Keep the leadsman singing out. Slowly, with infinite caution and patience, they crept in closer and closer, seeing no more of the cliff than the effervescent dark loom with a narrow border of angry foam at its foot. At the moment of anchoring, the fog was so thick, all they could see there might have been a thousand miles out in the open sea. Yet the shelter of the land could be felt. There was a peculiar quality in the stillness of the air, very faint, very elusive. The wash of the ripple against the encircling land reached their ears. The mysterious sudden pause. Well, that's that. That's about half a mile between us and the other side of the fjord. We can stay here till the fog lifts and get a chance to see what we're doing again. Well, it seems to be lifting already, sir. Back there towards the open sea. I hope it does. Quite a bright patch. Here, yeah, wait a minute. What's that? Give me the glasses. I could almost swear. Well, well, you'd be right, then. There's another ship out there, lying at anchor. Yes, but hang it. It's a wonder we didn't run slap into her when we came in. Yes, certainly. But why didn't she make herself known, rung her bell? She must have heard us coming in. We came in pretty quietly, admittedly, but they must have heard our leadsman at least. We couldn't have passed her more than 50 yards off. Quite. What you might call a close shave. We never heard a sound from her. Fellows on board must have been holding their breath. I rather think that's what they were doing. Ah. Had we better take a look at them, sir? I think we better had. At first, I suppose she was just a coaster standing too. I'm not so sure the more I think about it. In fact, I'm not at all sure. Laura Bolton sent a boarding party across to her. I want to know a little more about that ship. Aye, aye, sir. The boat was lowered and moved away into the fog. The white swirl of vapor that lay on the water spotted it up as though it had been sunk. 
Only the shadowy outline of the mystery ship remained afloat above the drifting whiteness. For a quarter of an hour, there was utter silence, and then the boarding party returned, appearing suddenly alongside. The officer in charge came up to make his report. Well, what is she, a coaster? No, sir, a stranger, a neutral. Oh, really? Well, tell us a little bit more about her, then. What's she doing here, anyway? Well, they said they've had engine trouble, so they stood in here to keep out of the weather. They did, eh? Well, how did they get in here if they had engine trouble? I asked them that, sir. They, they said they were drifting about in the fog for three days, then the wind got up, and they simply ran before it when they saw where it was taking them. Well, I suppose that's just possible. The wind's in the right quarter, such as it is. There's hardly enough of it, I'd have thought. Oh, no, sir. This was four days ago. Apparently, there was quite a stiffish breeze blew up. They were even afraid of a gale. Ah, well, that checks, too. Is they're talking about last Friday? Quite a plausible story, isn't it? What about the ship's papers? Our papers in perfect order, sir. I checked them carefully. She sailed from Gottenberg last Monday, eight days ago, with a cargo for Newcastle. General merchandise, all checking with the manifest. From what I could see of her, sir, she's quite in the clear. She is, eh? Well, the master said he didn't know where they were, said they'd been drifting about so long in the fog, he didn't have any good idea of his position. He asked me for a bearing, but I didn't give him one till I'd checked with you, sir. Good. Uh, just one thing. What about her engines now? Are they still disabled? Uh, no, sir. She has steam on them. Oh, she has. Number one, you know, I think you were right after all. They were holding their breaths as we passed them. They certainly were. <laughs> In a moment, we continue with Theater Royal. We'd like to remind you of the fine parade of good listening tomorrow night on NBC. Jerome Kern's musical drama, Sonny, takes the spotlight on the Railroad Hour, starring Gordon McRae and lovely Lucille Norman. Then Howard Barlow and the Firestone Symphony Orchestra join with Metropolitan Basso Cesare Siepi, the guest artist on The Voice of Firestone. Later, George London returns to the Telephone Hour, with Donald Voorhees conducting the Bell Telephone Orchestra. Top off your Monday evening of musical entertainment when Paul Laval conducts his city service Band of America in a double salute to the Safety Congress and National Bible Week. And you'll want to join that lovable pair, Fibber McGee and Molly, as they find themselves involved in another laugh-provoking misadventure the whole family will enjoy. As they find themselves involved in another laugh-provoking misadventure. That's followed by an amusing storytelling session as jokester Senator Ed Ford and his quick-witted partners, Peter Donald, Harry Hirschfield, and former Governor Harold Hoffman, get together to outdo one another on Can You Top This? Later Monday, enjoy a swashbuckling drama when McDonald Carey stars in another thrilling episode of Jason and the Golden Fleet. And remember, tomorrow NBC joins the state of Ohio in a salute to popular funster Bob Hope, heard each morning with a quarter hour of helpful and hilarious tips to the housewife. For the best in listening entertainment, you'll want to stay tuned to your NBC radio network. And now we return to Theater Royal. I'll tell you, number one, I don't like it. I don't like it one little bit. Somewhere around here, we know very well, a German U-boat has been restocked probably by a neutral vessel. Here in this fjord, we find a neutral vessel hiding away in the fog. 
But her story was perfectly plausible, sir. Yes, a little bit too plausible to my mind. If she wasn't trying to avoid us, why didn't she make herself known when we came in? She must have heard us. Well, a fog like this does muffle small sounds, sir. And what could their object be, after all? Sneak out, unnoticed, once we'd passed her by. Oh, then why didn't they, sir? They might have done, you know. Not exactly unnoticed, perhaps. What I suppose they could have slipped their cable without making some noise. Still, in a minute or two, they'd have been gone before we'd fairly made them out. Yet they didn't. Well, I suppose that's true enough. What did you make of the crew, Johnson? Oh, the usual lot, sir. The engineers, quite typical, I should say. Very full of the way they repaired their engines. The mate a bit surly, perhaps. Not much English. The master, rather an impressive sort of a fellow in his way. Typically Scandinavian. Typically with us, but he had to have been drinking. Seemed to be recovering from a regular bout of it. Well, I did, eh? What instructions did you give him? Oh, I told him I couldn't give him permission to proceed, sir. He said he wouldn't dare to move his ship her own length out in a fog like this. Permission or no permission. I left a man on board all the same. Quite right. Well, keep an eye on her as much as you can with all this fog about. And keep your ears open. Aye, aye, sir. I don't know. Maybe I'm a bit too suspicious, but I, I can't help feeling that this very plausible ship may very well have been the one that had a rendezvous with that U-boat out there. But... You could never prove it, sir. Well, I, I don't know. I want to have a look at it myself. But from the report we've had, I'm afraid you couldn't even make a case for reasonable suspicion, sir. Could you? I'd go on board all the same. Must another boarding party. All right, sir. What did I expect to find? Well, I couldn't have told anybody. Not even myself. I suppose what I really expected to find there was an atmosphere, the atmosphere of gratuitous which to my mind nothing could excuse. But how could I detect it? Sniff it? Taste it? Receive some mysterious communication which would turn my invincible suspicion into a certitude strong enough to provoke action with all its risks? I went aboard. The master, large, robust, Scandinavian led the way to the chart room. Not very comfortable, but uh, while I am at sea, this is where I live. Aha. Oh, take a seat, please. Uh, what can I do for you? Oh, it's nothing. It's merely a routine check. Your papers appear to be in order. No, oh, of course. If it had not been for trouble with the engines, uh, we, we would have been in England, uh, in Newcastle. Instead of which? Oh, we are here. Aha. Oh, what I mean is, I don't know where we are. Oh, and it all for three days we drift in the fog with our engine broken down. I tell you, we might be anywhere. So the fog's been out here for a week. Yes, that's no exaggeration. Eight days. We leave Yotabari last Monday, last week. On Tuesday, I am somewhere south of here, and my engines break down. We drift in the fog, I don't know where, and any wind gets up and we put in here. Since then, there has been nothing but fog again. Ah, uh -huh. so you've been anchored here all that time. Yeah, that's right. Four days. So isn't it enough to drive a man out of his mind? Well, I did like this. This ship is my own. Your officer has seen the papers. She isn't much, as you can see for yourself. Just an old cargo boat. Just a bare living for my family. Those are their pictures up there. And she'll be making a fortune for your family with this old ship before you finish. Please I mean, out of the war. Ah, uh, yes. Out of the war. Well, what of that? You wouldn't be angry about it, would you? Oh, you are too much of a gentleman. 
Uh, we didn't bring this board on you. No, I suppose you didn't. Well, and suppose we sat down and cried. What good would that be? Well, let those cry who made all the trouble. Now, time is money, you say in English, sir. Well, this time is money. Oh, yes, it is money, all right. Well, I'm glad you're satisfied. Well, I suppose you've made it perfectly clear that the war's not your fault and why you're here. Your logbook confirms that very minutely. Of course, a logbook may be cooked. Uh, please. I say a logbook may be cooked, faked, used as an alibi. Nothing easier. Oh. But you can't suspect me of anything. Uh, my cargo is made up for, for an English port in Newcastle. True. How can you suspect me? And what is it you suspect me of doing? Well, I haven't said that I do suspect you. What makes you think I might? But, but what you said about the logbook. Well, I find you lying here with steam up, hiding in the fog. But my engines have been repaired, so at last I can get steam up again. Why didn't you make yourself known when you heard us coming into the field? I hear nothing. I do not know you are there until your boat come along. But sir. you must have heard our leadsman. Uh, please. You must have heard the shout of our leadsman. Taking the depth as we came by. I was in this tap room. I, I hear nothing at all. I wondered what he'd do if I accused him to his face of being what I suspected he was. I think I did that. And what did he say? Would he betray himself in some way? <laughs> oh, it was perfectly plain the fellow had been drinking. Oh, yes, he'd been drinking. He'd have had a lie ready all the same. I turned away in disgust and went up on the deck, but I had the crew mustered formally for an inspection. You the chief engineer? Yeah. What's been the trouble with your engines? The police. Your engines broke down, didn't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the, the main... Uh, the main feed became loose, uh, and the steam was not right in the cylinder. Also, the condenser chamber was wrong. Where was this? A week ago, last Tuesday. Uh-huh. You the mate? Yeah. Let me see your papers. Oh, oh, here. Where did you join the ship? You're the boy. When? Oh, three months ago. This is your first trip to Hull? We are not bound for Hull. We are bound for Newcastle. I could discover no flaw in the logbooks, Tori. So at last I dismissed them. My impression of them was that they were a well-picked lot that probably been promised a fistful of money each if the trip paid off. All slightly anxious, but not frightened. Not a single one of them likely to give the show away. At last I returned to the chart room. The master still lingered there. He appeared to have been drinking while I was away on deck. I sit down. I just say you're wondering at my proceedings. Though I'm not detaining you, am I? I mean, you wouldn't care to move in this fog. I don't know where I am. Ah, you didn't happen to notice any unusual objects floating about while you were at sea? Objects were what objects? We were groping blind in the fog for days before we could leave. Uh, we had a few clear intervals. And earlier today, I saw something out there that makes me suspect that not so very long since a U-boat was contacted and restocked. Perhaps by a neutral vessel. Oh, I see. But you only suspect that. You have no proof. Oh, well, perhaps not. But I also have my information. That's why I happen to be here at all. Uh, shooting's too good for people that concede neutrality in that sort of manner. Oh, yes, yes, perhaps. No, there's no perhaps about it. Oh, no, no, you are right. But, uh, but what about the tempters? 
We better kill off that lot. There's four, five, six million of them. Oh, but I had better hold my tongue. You have some suspicion. No, I, I've no suspicion. Oh, well, let us put it like this. We know that you English are gentlemen, but uh, let us speak the truth. Why should we love you so very much? You haven't done anything to be loved. We don't love the Germans either, of course, but they haven't done anything for that either. Comes along with a bag of gold. Oh, I haven't been in Rotterdam on my last voyage for nodding. Oh, I'm sure. You'll be able to tell our people something interesting when you get to Newcastle. Why, oh, my dear. But you keep some people in your pay at Rotterdam, so let them report it. I am neutral, aren't I? So you say. Well, listen. Have you ever seen a poor man on one side and had his bag of gold on the other? Oh, of course, I couldn't be tempted. I haven't nerve for it. Oh, I tell you, it is nodding to me. I, I just talk openly for what? Yes, I'm listening to you. Well, now that I know you have no suspicions, I talk. Uh, you don't know what a poor man is. I do. I'm poor myself. This old shipping and much, and she's mortgaged to barely no more. Oh, of course, I wouldn't have the nerve, but... But a man who has the stuff he takes about looks like other cargo packages, barrels, things, copper tubes, whatnot. He doesn't see it working. He isn't real to him, but but he sees the gold. That's real. Oh, of course, nothing would induce me. I suffer from an internal disease. I would go crazy with anxiety or, or take a drink or something. No, the risk is too great. It would be ruined. Hippo for death. Well, it is not into me. I am not one of those. No, no, of course not. But I'm going to clear you fellas off this coast at once, all of you. Now, begin with you. You must leave in half an hour. What, leave in this fog? Yes, you'll have to go in this fog. But, but I don't know where I am. I tell you, this. three days I drifted lost in the fog. Ah, uh -huh. you don't know how to get out, don't you? Well, I'm giving you your course. You steer south by east, half east, for about four miles. Then you'll be clear to hold to the westward to your port. The weather will clear up before very long. But please, it's better like this. I, I tell you, I haven't the nerve to do it. I'm ordering you to do it. Unless you want no, me. No, no, no. I tell you, I have had enough orders. Yeah. You'll leave within the next half hour. You've seen, and I've given you your course. But please, I do not know where I am. I've given you your course. Very well, sir. I have no choice. I returned to my ship, leaving the master standing there as if he were rooted to the deck. Within the next ten minutes, I heard their anchor being weighed. Then, shadowy in the fog, she steamed away out of the fjord onto her given course. Oh, dear. That's the end of the tale. In fact, you let him go. Now, listen. That course would lead the ship straight on to the rocks beyond the mouth of the fjord. She steamed out, she ran into them, and went down. So, she had spoken the truth. She did not know where he was. But still... I proved nothing. Nothing either way. It may have been the only truth in all this story. Yes. Hmm. 
dismissed or been driven out by a menacing stare. Nothing more. And you knew? Oh, yes, I gave that course to him. It seemed to me the supreme test. I believe... No. No, I don't believe. I... I don't know. At the time, I was certain. They all went down. I don't know whether I've done stern retribution or murder. I don't know. I shall never know. Oh, my God. Poor, poor. I shall never know. This is Laurence Olivier again. I would like to extend my thanks to Ralph Richardson for that fine performance in Joseph Conrad's story, The Tale. Our thanks, as usual, should also go to the excellent supporting cast. I shall have with me as my guest on next week's program another good friend of the theatre, John Gilbert. Until then, when I look forward to your company, au revoir and thank you. Sir Lawrence Olivier introduced, as usual, today's transcribed program... The script was by D.G. Bryson. The music was under the direction of Sidney Torch. Theater Royal is an NBC presentation produced and directed by Harry Allen Towers. Your last man out next on the NBC radio network. Broadcasting Company presents Radio City Playhouse, Attraction 39. Ladies and gentlemen, here's the director of Radio City Playhouse. Harry W. Junkin. Thank you, Bob. Friends, before we begin our show, Radio City Playhouse, on behalf of NBC and station WFAA Dallas, extends hearty congratulations to the Dallas Morning News on the formal dedication of its new building and its 108th birthday. Good luck and continued success to the Dallas Morning News. And now a word about Mr. Bill Lipton, our star on tonight's show. Although he is only 22... He has had 12 years' experience in radio. On the Playhouse, he has appeared in such varied roles as a French porter, a drunken husband, and on our Christmas broadcast as one of the three wise men. He is one of the most versatile actors we know, and in spite of taking three years out to serve in the Navy, he will receive his master's degree from Columbia University in June. All this from a young man of 22 compels our respect and admiration. Here is Bill Lipton playing Frank Jackson in Murder is a Matter of Opinion, Attraction 39, on Radio City Playhouse. I'm telling you this story from prison. I have 11 more days before they electrocute me for... for murdering my brother. Thank you.
I didn't kill him. As God is my solemn judge, I did not kill my brother. I'll tell you everything I know, and perhaps you can figure out why I'm here. I can't. I can't believe it. I've been over and over and over the story. Every word of it is true, and nobody believes me. Nobody. I'm 22. I was going to be a lawyer. My dad thought I was just about the... Well, he was pretty proud. Now even Dad thinks I'm guilty. Even Dad. And I'm not. I'd like you to understand me. I, I was the... Well, I, I talked fast and too much, and I guess maybe I was a smart aleck. Well, that's not so terrible, is it? I'm only 22, and... and well, I'm... Not a smart aleck anymore, if that's any consolation, anybody. Brian, my brother, was quieter. He was a year younger than I, and he didn't talk nearly as much or as fast or as often. That's why he never won an argument with me in his life. And believe me, we had plenty. But they weren't fights. They were, well, two brothers. We razzed each other, but it was all fun. Underneath, we, we, well, we were brothers. In our first year of law school, we were real eager and talked pretty big about legal points. But Brian never won an argument. Never. So you're wrong. It says so right here. Where? All bills for raising revenue originate in the House of Representatives. Can't you read? Well, I, I thought they could originate in either house if it was just a question of... Well, you're wrong, so pay up. I still don't think that Look, they... Brian, who's right? You or the Encyclopedia of Federal Law? Well, I, I guess... You that... owe me half a buck. Come on, cough up. Well, okay, I guess... Look, you admit you're wrong, don't you? Yes, I admit it. Okay, give me 50 cents. Trent University Law School has uh, pretty high standards... If you want to stay, you better smarten up. In our second year, we began to disagree violently about capital punishment and murder. Brian was obsessed with the idea that all kinds of innocent people had been executed for murders they didn't commit. Every time he read about some killing in the paper, he'd try to prove to me that the condemned person wasn't guilty at all. The night he got his big idea, we were sitting on a bench way down at one end of the campus. There was nobody around. It was about ten o'clock. And Brian was very excited. Frank, I still say that the man in the Jensen case could have been innocent. I don't believe that a man who only weighs 130 pounds could have shoved a man the size of Jensen out of a hotel window. Well, they've carried out the sentence, so it doesn't matter what you say. How do you think you'd feel if you'd been in his shoes? <laughs> Cold, stiff, and dead. Do you mean to sit there and say that you don't think it ever happens? There's never been a case of a, an innocent man convicted of a murder he didn't commit? It isn't a question of what I think. You've made the statement that it's possible for an innocent man to be hanged or electrocuted. I say prove it. All right. All right, I will. I can, you know. If if you'll help me, I'll, I'll prove it. How? Let's stage a, 
A fake murder. What are you talking about? A mock murder case. Look, I'll play the corpse and you play the killer. We'll, we'll stage a killing, a fake killing. I'll let a dozen witnesses actually see you shoot me in cold blood, and then afterwards I'll undertake your defense and prove that you're innocent. If I'd only said no, if I'd only admitted that perhaps it was possible for an innocent man to be hanged or electrocuted, why couldn't I have agreed with him? Why couldn't I let him have his say, and if I disagreed with him, kept my opinion of myself? I don't know. Actually, a suggestion wasn't as strange as it sounds. Each year, the moot court of the law school secretly planned and enacted some sort of crime. The crime was committed on the campus, and no one knew about it except the chairman of the moot court, the victim, and the criminal. The idea was to catch the students by surprise and give them realistic experience in criminal procedure. Brian and I decided we'd stage our own mock crime. Well, that's all it ever was. It was a gag right from start to finish. I don't know where the slip-up was. I don't know who it was that hated Brian so much that... Well, I just don't know where it went wrong. We worked it out very carefully. Brian drew up a week's schedule. We even made a bet of $50, two months' allowance. He was convinced he could win, and even I began to get interested. We had to be sure that nobody had the slightest suspicion it was all a planned affair, so we made the bench down at the end of the campus our private conference room. We met there every night before going to bed, and at last we got all the details worked out. Well, we're just about ready, Frank. I've, I've written down what you're supposed to do. Memorize it and then burn it. We'll, we'll commit the murder next Monday. That gives us a whole week. All right, next Monday. First, we've got to establish a motive. You've got to make everybody on the campus think that you hate me like poison. A week isn't very long. Well, it, it, it's long enough. We'll pull the watch gag in the cafeteria tomorrow. Oh, can you suggest to Tom Benson that he have lunch with you? Well, sure, I guess so. Well, ask him tonight. You be in the cafeteria at 12.30. I'll come in about a quarter to one. I'll be sure that somebody sees me put my watch on the bed tomorrow, and you steal it right after breakfast. Okay? Right after breakfast. You, uh, you know your lines? <laughs> we rehearsed them often enough. You sure you don't mind the sock in the jaw part? Oh, just don't get too enthusiastic, that's all. Well, it's difficult to fake if I don't hit you reasonably hard. Oh, I guess I can stand it for once. You hit me on the word contemptible. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I tell you, Brian, you've lost your 50 bucks right now. Want to make it 100? Four months allowance, are you crazy? I'm going to win this bet, Frank. You wait and see. Well, come on, it's getting late. You go back first. I'll see you in the cafeteria tomorrow at a quarter to one. What's the matter with you, Frank? You've hardly said a word all through lunch. It's Brian, Tom. Is something the matter? I've just discovered that my kid brother's a heel. He's also a liar. Oh, now, look, Frank, that's no way to talk about Brian. He's a cheap, sneaky little punk, and he makes me sick. He's, he's just come in for it. It's a public cafeteria. Well, I suppose you've got your reasons, but it doesn't seem like a very nice way for two brothers to act. Tom, I could tell you stories about that kid that would make your hair curl. Rob it. He's coming over here. Oh, why can't he eat by himself? He knows how I feel. He's always trying to force in on people. Oh, and... Frank, here he comes. Frank. Frank, I'd like a couple of words with you. Oh, look, fellas, i got to get Sit going. Sit still, Tom. Finish your coffee. 
I'd like you to get a load of what my father expects Trent to make into a lawyer. Where's my watch, Frank? What are you talking about? My watch. I left it on the bed this morning while I went to shower. It's gone. So what? I want it back. I haven't got it. I saw you come out of the dormitory on the way back from showers. We're the only men in the dorm who don't have a nine o'clock lecture this morning. When I went back into the dorm, there was nobody else there and the watch was gone. Now I want it back. Are you accusing me of stealing your watch? Yes, and I want it back. Well, look, boys, I don't think this is... Don't go, Tom. Just get a load of Junior here. So I'm a thief, am I? Frank, I want my watch back. Oh, drop dead, you dumb little jerk. If you weren't so scrawny, I'd knock your face in. You stole my watch. Now, look, Frank. Brian, don't be crazy. Shut up, Tom. Where's the watch, Frank? Are you going to give it to me quietly or do I have to take it? Look, kid, you're stinking up the cafeteria. Buzz off. Go on, creep. My own brother, a dirty, cheap, can... Oh, we were pretty convincing. Brian knocked me down. Dishes were broken. Everybody in the cafeteria stood rooted to the spot. In an hour, it was all over the campus. Everybody knew that the Jackson brothers were fighting. Everybody believed it. Neither Brian nor I made a single slip. The next night, we had a row in the dormitory. On Wednesday, I threw a milkshake at Brian in the milk bar. Thursday, we got hauled up before the dean and told that if we couldn't behave like gentlemen, we'd better leave. Friday, we had a row at basketball practice. Saturday night at the third-year prom, we had a fist fight in the middle of the floor over Brian's girl. Elaine cried and went home alone. Oh, it was a build-up. A real grade-A build-up. And all of it was planned. All of it. I can't understand why people won't believe it was a gag. I... Well, anyway, on a Sunday night preceding the murder, we had a last conference on our bench. It was a perfect setup. Perfect. Oh, it's perfect, Frank. Perfect. Tomorrow we'll pull the murder. Oh, oh, I, I picked up a gun today. Here. Good night, Brian. Where'd you get that thing? I stole it from the sports office. It won't be needed until track practice on Wednesday. Don't worry, I'll put it back. It's loaded with blanks. Are you sure you can put it back without being caught? Sure. Now, is everything set for tomorrow? Uh, uh, you'll be in the bookstore at 12.15, right? Right. In the history section near the door. I'll come in about one. I'll yell out your name. You turn around and I fire twice. That's right. Uh, incidentally, I I'm filling a little paper cup with ketchup and putting it in my shirt pocket. When you fire, I'll clutch my hands to my chest. Squeeze the ketchup and and fall. It'll mess up a perfectly good shirt. Oh, it'll wash out. I'll I'll, I'll play dead for ten minutes and just lie there, and then you rush back to the dorm and wait for me. Then we'll have lunch and go over together and report the crime to the dean. Okay. Now, one last check. You're sure you haven't given this away to anybody? Oh, positive. And that slip of paper that I wrote out instructions on? Burn it. You think I'm crazy? If you could produce that paper, you could prove all this was a gag. Well, I. Guess we've thought of everything. I, um, I bet you're going to pull some phony self-defense gag. No? An insanity plea? Nope. You'll shoot me in the bookstore tomorrow. It'll be straight, deliberate, premeditated killing. And I'll get you off. It's a terrific stunt. You can do it. How much is this dictionary, miss? Uh, 4.85. Okay, I'll take it. Uh, can I charge it, please? Oh, certainly. Uh, what is the name, please? Jackson. 
Brian Jackson. Brian. Brian. Brian! What? Frank. Frank, what's the matter? I told you I wouldn't take any more, didn't I? Well, I meant it. Frank. Frank, put down that gun. I've taken all I'm going to take. This is where you get it. Oh. And then... Then everything exploded in my brain. Right up until I fired the shots, I, I, I'd been enjoying myself. But there was something about... About the way Brian clutched at his stomach instead of his chest. He fell. And there was blood on his lips. Real blood. Brian's blood. From there on, everything was a nightmare. Brian was dead before they could get him to the hospital... I'm not quite clear on what happened after that because I I, I I was stunned. My own brother. Brian. My brother. In some fantastic, unimaginable way, I... I shot him. They phoned the police, of course, and... I managed to get a few words with the dean before they came to pick me up. I don't think you'd better tell me all this. The police are the ones... Dean Harrison, you've got to believe me. You've got to. We planned the whole thing. Brian had, had always believed that the... Well, well, you see, we... Look, Dean Harrison, I, I can't talk right, but... Frank, but, there's no use. But this was it. a stunt. A mock murder. Brian and I planned it ourselves. The fights, the build-up was all a stunt. Brian believed that I could kill him. I, I mean, appear to kill him. And, and that he could defend me and... Oh, Dean, those bullets were blanks. I mean, they... Brian got the gun himself from the sports office. They were supposed to be blank cartridges. Frank, I... you better not talk anymore. I, I don't know what to say. I, I've i been at Trent for 12 years. There's never been a tragedy like this. I, I'm very upset. I've always liked you, Frank, but this is out of but my hands. But, Harrison, surely you don't think that I, I, I really... I telephoned your father. He's taking a plane from New York tonight. I'm afraid from here on it's up to the police. They'll be here any minute. <laughs> I can't recall what happened in the next two days. My father arrived. I was booked. They put me in a cell. Dad was rushing around about bail and trying to get Peter Cheney to come from New York to defend me. Dad looked haggard and older than I'd ever seen him look. He came every afternoon to see me. There you are, Mr. Jackson. Yes, thank you, God. Hello, Dad. Hello, Frank. Half an hour, Mr. Jackson. That's all you can have. All right. Is, is it over? Yes. <laughs> Was it a nice funeral? Frankie. Oh, Frankie. Frankie. Did you... Did you get Peter Cheney? Yes. Yes, I talked to him on the telephone for an hour this morning. He said he'd take the case. What else did he say? He says that we've got to find out who switched those bullets. But I tell you, I don't know. Frank, think hard. Did Brian have any enemies? Was there anybody on the campus that 
How did Elaine feel about him? I don't know. She she certainly wouldn't want to kill him. Cheney says if we can't find out who changed the bullets, we'd, we'd better plead temporary insanity. I won't. I won't plead insanity. Frank, I... you may have to. But I didn't kill him, Dad. I won't plead insanity. But Frank, I... it's such damning evidence. No jury on earth will believe your story. No jury on earth. <laughs> When I finally came up for trial, my father was a broken man. One son killed, the other convicted of his murder. After the trial started, I'd lie on my bed at night and go over the whole thing word by word. And I'd stop. And I'd pray. I'd say the Lord's Prayer over and over. But my praying didn't seem to make much difference. Witness after witness testified to how Frank and I hated each other. The watch, the fight at the dance. One after the other until I almost began to believe that maybe I had killed him.
If the gun was loaded with blank cartridges, where are they? I... I don't know. If nobody else knew about the gun, if nobody knew it was under your pillow, who could have switched the bullets? I don't know. There are a great many things that you don't know, Mr. Jackson. I only know I didn't kill him. I didn't kill him, I tell you! Frank Jackson is lying. He is lying desperately in an effort to escape the consequences of his loathsome fratricide. Even if the motive of the murder had not been clearly established. Even if 12 witnesses had not seen him shoot down his brother in cold blood as they testified. Frank Jackson would still stand condemned by the hopeless confusion of his own testimony. Why did he invent the fantastic story he asks you to believe? Because it served one good purpose. It supplies him with an excuse for his inability to call one single witness in his defense. The only other man who knew about the alleged hoax's death. That is what automatically proves that no one else but Frank Jackson could have loaded real bullets in a murder gun. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I imagine it's unnecessary for you to leave the box to render the only possible verdict. Guilty of murder in the first degree. Have you reached a verdict? Yes, Your Honor. We, the jury, find the defendant guilty of murder in the first degree as charged. We appealed, of course, but we lost. I've been found guilty by due process of the law I trust. And in 11 more days, I'm going to die in the electric chair. Up until we lost the appeal three days ago, I hadn't given up hope. Now I know that nothing can save me. I also know that I didn't kill Brian. And somehow, somewhere, the man or woman who changed those blank cartridges for real bullets... Somehow he or she will pay. I have no emotion left. I can't cry or pray or do anything but wait. Eleven more days of waiting. Gordon wants you in his office, Jackson. Come on. What's the use? We've been over it so many times it doesn't make sense anymore. Come on. Let's get going. If the warden wants you, he wants you. Here's the prisoner, warden. Come in, Jackson. What do you want now? Come in, son. Sit down. Son, a few moments ago, I received a visit from a notary public, a Mr. Bixby. An amazing story. It seems that three days before your brother died, he went to Mr. Bixton and wrote out a statement which he made Mr. Bixton witness without reading. Uh, a statement? It was sealed in an envelope in Bixton's presence and kept in his safe. Your brother told Bixton you were going to be tried for a crime. But if you were convicted, Bixton was to bring this letter to me three days after his sentence was passed. He did as he was told. For which your brother paid him $50. Bixton's outside now. 
dictating his testimony. Now, this is the letter your brother wrote. Here, read it. To whom it may concern. This is an open letter to my brother who will probably need it. Dear Frank, I hope you'll forgive what I did to you. It was I, Brian Jackson, who replaced the blanks in your gun with real bullets. You didn't know it, but Dr. Cordner had given me just three months to live. Heart, he said, and an incurable. I chose this way because I didn't want a lingering death. And because I wanted you to know that an innocent man can be convicted of murder and sentenced to death. This letter will bring you your freedom. But I hope you will admit now that murder is... A matter of opinion. Yes, Frank. Whether, whether you, you like, like it, it or, or not, not, murder is a matter of opinion. Your loving brother, Brian. You have just heard Murder is a Matter of Opinion by Jules Archer. Attraction 39 on Radio City Playhouse. The story was adapted for radio by Harry W. Junkin, who also directed the production. Bill Lipton starred as Frank Jackson. Michael O'Day was Brian Jackson. Other players in the cast included Peter Hobbs, Sidney Smith, Scott Douglas, Elaine Ross, and Robert Andrus. The music was composed and conducted by Dr. Roy Shields. This is Harry Junkin again. Our sincere thanks to Bill Lipton and Michael O'Day for their splendid performances tonight. Next week, we hope you'll be with us again at this same time for another story on Radio City Playhouse. Next week, Attraction 40 on Radio City Playhouse. Good night, everybody. Warren speaking. This is NBC, the national broadcasting company. That's the Relic Radio Show for this week. You can find more from Theater Royal, Radio City Playhouse, the Relic Radio Show, and all of the Relic Radio podcasts at relicradio.com. You'll also find our shoutcast stream up and running there. And if you'd like to help support this and all of the shows, visit donate.relicradio.com or click on one of the links on the website. Thanks to those who have helped out. Thanks for joining me this week. I'll be back tomorrow with Case Closed and next Tuesday with another episode of The Relic Radio Show.